I'm Ben Hayward, and you're listening to Inside India. Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Hayward. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. When you think about India, the first thing that comes to mind might be the amazing food. For example, butter chicken, naan bread, dosas, and the entrepreneurial Indians who brought these foods to the world. But with India's rapidly expanding middle-class population, literally hungry for new ideas, is there an opportunity to flip the script and take the world to India? It may sound counterintuitive, but for some, this is exactly what is happening. When I lived in Delhi back in 2016, I used to get my weekly pizza fix at Jamie's Pizzeria, located in a bustling shopping mall out by Delhi Airport. It was fascinating to observe hundreds of Delhiites pouring every hour to sample a taste of a lamb far away. That's why in today's podcast, I'm really pleased that I can introduce you to a friend of mine, Jasper Reed, founder of International Markets Management, a UK-based trading house specialized in developing brands and businesses in new markets, particularly India and China. IMM owns the master franchises in India for Jamie's Italian, Jamie's Pizzeria, and Wendy's Burgers. Jasper's story of bringing pizza and burgers to India, to me, is literally the story of a new modern day India. That story is one of opportunities that lie in this amazing subcontinent, an opportunity to serve an emerging consumer who is literally hungry for new ideas and tastes. Thank you for being my first guest. It's great to have you on the show. So take us back to the start. Why India and why pizza and burgers? Hi, Ben. Great to be on the show. Thank you for having me. A little bit of background. We basically have been building a business for 10 years. And the core of our business is a whole methodology about how you take businesses and brands from a home market into international markets. We started in London with an advisory company, and we helped a ton of clients, 3i and Pizza Express and John Lewis, lots of big brands who wanted to go international. And then as we got into that, we took a view that we'd also like to operate, right? So we'd like to do what these clients were doing. And we'd done a lot of work for the owners of Pizza Express, which is, you know, it's a big UK casual dining chain. They've got 400 company-owned sites in the UK. And we've been helping them in India and in mainland China. So in our head, we thought, okay, let's set up shop in one of those two big markets. They're both big, they're both relatively underpenetrated. And then we thought to ourselves, okay, well, what's our subject? So having done all these assignments with effectively chain restaurants, and we'd work with about a dozen, we thought we'll get into food. And then we thought, what kind of food? So we thought we'd better do something that's well-established, things like pizzas and burgers. So we sort of made the decision on the offer or the product, if you like. Then we had a toss-up between India and China. And that, it was a bit of a kind of toss of a coin. But having said that, I once met someone in China that said to me that Chinese customers basically have no interest in bread. They hate tomatoes and <laughs> many of them are lactose intolerant, 
which if you're in the pizza game, is a bad <laughs> lookout. Now, actually, none of that is true. It's all quite apocryphal. So lesson number one of going overseas, be careful who you listen to. But anyway, we thought that India was a better fit. In truth, it was more to do with being less penetrated than China. I'd worked in India through the 90s. My father had worked in India. My grandfather worked for Tata in West Bengal. So India it was. That was basically the thought process, Ben. Fascinating. And I know you're fundraising at the moment, but are you getting a sense that foreigners are beginning to embrace India and its huge growth potential now more than ever? Seven years ago, when we raised our first private capital for India, we'd chosen India, we'd chosen food. Within food, we'd chosen pizzas and burgers. And part of the reason from an investment perspective was that Jubilant Foodworks, who the, the listed vehicle that controlled Domino's, which is the biggest mm. Western chain in India, now, that's a very well-followed story from an institutional capital perspective. It's listed. The same goes for vehicles like Westlife. Again, that's a partial listing of McDonald's in the South and West. So in choosing India and choosing those subjects, we chosen areas that are quite well covered. Now, having said that, when we started, obviously, because of the check size, we raised initially $10 million and we raised it predominantly out of the UK. Now, the way we did that was kind of interesting because at that check size, obviously, you're oriented towards family offices, high net worth yeah. individuals, those kind of people. Yeah. Now, the way we thought about this, which was sort of particular to us, was that because my business partner, a guy called David Stewart, was a name in the asset management world, and himself, mm. he'd been head of Fidelity Emerging Markets, so he knew India very well. And the first protocol was really colleagues and associates of David who knew India. So people from Fidelity, Sloan Robinson, Genesis, you know, these are all developing emerging market specialists. And our proposition to them, Ben, was basically that they could invest, whether PA or through their institutional vehicle, in a private entity running food businesses in bits of food that are quite well covered. That's an important point because for overseas investors, it's quite hard to get at private vehicles in India. I mean, you can play the markets, you know, you need to know what you're doing. So mm. that had an attraction. And then from a structuring perspective, the fact that we were asking people to invest in our UK vehicle that then goes up through Mauritius because there's no tax treaty between India and the UK and down into private limited companies in India was also attractive because you were in a jurisdiction that was familiar. You had a structure which was me, the operator CEO, sitting in Delhi, my chairman, David Stewart, sure. sitting in the UK. And we've done a few rounds with that group and other similar groups. Now, to bring you up to date on current fundraising, there's a COVID factor, obviously. Mm. Um, and if you're doing chain restaurants like us, you're at the business end of that. Having said that, and given that the vaccines are increasing and we can probably see the end of COVID, fingers crossed, you're mm. seeing quite a dramatic increase in the institutional markets in terms of FDI into India. And I think you're Record back to the last year. Record year last year, Ben, but you're back to some fundamental things. We're in the consumer sector. That's what we know about. And it is hard to think of a larger, more underpenetrated market on earth. And by underpenetration, I mean simply less competition. It's intensely sure. competitive and complicated in many ways, but relative to a mature market, you know, it's kind of wide open. Tell us about the Indian consumer and the fundamentals, the demographics. We hear about it a lot here in the Western world, but what does it look like on the ground to you as you build your business in India? 
Everybody knows the demographics. Two-thirds of the country are under the age of 30. Biggest mobile data use on Earth. Biggest Facebook use on Earth. And so on and so forth. So people understand those fundamentals. But, and this is the big but, it's a long game. Mm. And while it's somewhat predictable in terms of year-on-year GDP growth, which is actually neither here nor there because you need to have a sector equivalent number. It's very bumpy on the way up. And if I look back over our seven years of operating in India, yeah, there's definitely been growth, but there's been huge bumps along the way. So to answer your question, market conditions post-COVID look fantastic. There are ugly things like inflation and possibly... Mm. Increase in dollar followed by, you know, emerging market taper tantrums. But again, that's not really our game. Things are reasonably well poised and we're very bullish. Excellent. You've spent an awful lot of time getting to know the Indian consumer over the last seven, 10 years. What's changed? I think the first thing to say up front, Ben, this is a really obvious point about India. India is massive and massively diverse. <laughs> they always say you should think about India more as a continent than a country, which is true. If you're operating in any one of the 26 states or union territories, the markets and the consumers there are very specific to those markets. And it does change quickly. That's an important calculation for anyone operating, particularly if your demographic or your TG, your target group, maps onto the Indian demographic, which is to say you're dealing with millennials, Gen Z, tech-enabled, high access to information, etc. People's habits change very quickly. I mean, we learned that in places like mainland China, where honestly, if you went away for two or three years, even short amounts of time and came back to a city like Shanghai or Guangzhou or Chongqing or these places, the pace of change was really very rapid. And of course, one of the obvious points is if you want to do India, you can't do it from London or Tokyo <laughs> or somewhere. You've got to do it from Delhi or Bombay or Bangalore or Calcutta or wherever you are. So it's very big. It's very diverse. It moves very quickly. Let's dive into the economics of the business for a second now. Something I, I want to touch on in a little bit more detail is this Indian consumer. Have you had to completely reimagine the pizza for the Indian market? Have you had to remodel the burger to suit the Indian consumer or... Are Indian consumers becoming more aspirational in what they want? Are they looking to things like the Big Mac saying, no, we want that. We don't want our Indian version. If we think about the UK or the US, we're paying six, seven, sometimes $8 for a, a burger meal. Is that what you charge consumers there or, or what's the price point? I mean, in broad terms, you can identify a few factors that are kind of immutable. It's a value-driven place. And here I'm talking about the consumer economy. Remember, the, the consumer economy is a fascinating economy because it's largely domestic in nature. And it's an interesting place like that because who knows what will happen post-COVID in mature markets. But India is a bit of a law of it unto itself in terms of consumer behaviors. But there's definitely a value principle. And one of the things that has definitely been learning for us is just what that means. So mm. the whole of my Wendy's burger business basically runs on a 29 rupee, you know, a 35 US cent burger called a bun tiki. And people can't conceive of a 35 cent burger. But the really important thing here is that your TG there is a boy or girl, man or woman, who is trading up from the street. Sure. And the regular street staples, so you might, let's say you wander down a Delhi Bombay high street, you might have a Chola Batura, but you pay 15 rupees. So here you're asking that customer to basically spend double. And that's a, a way of illustrating how very sensitive the market is, right? Every rupee counts. A lot of our yeah. customers will be allocated, you know, in terms of family finance, let's say, 100 rupees a day. 
That's for everything. That's for transport. Rough, that's roughly for a pound a day for those. Roughly a pound a day, exactly. And when they come to us, we're selling a bit of aspiration. It's an intriguing thing because you've really got to get kind of into the weeds of consumer behavior. It was the same anywhere. But the problem sure. for a lot of brands coming in is that they don't leave their London mindset in London. You know, yeah. they, you know, you've got yeah. to do that, right? You've got to think in rupees. You've got to think in whatever the local language is, whether it's Hindi or Tamil or whatever. Well, you take what we're offering just to illustrate it. No one's heard of Wendy's, right? It kind of looks like an, an aspirational thing, bit of America mm. probably, but McDonald's. So you're pulling people in on, on a price promise, 29 rupees, and that's what you market. But once your customer's in, you're effectively retailing friendly service, which they may or may not get on the streets, uh, high levels of hygiene. And that's becoming yeah. a thing in the middle class, right? Because the Chela Batura yeah. guy has good days and bad days on that front. <laughs> but then it's really functional stuff, Ben, because customers at 29 rupees are really surprisingly sticky and loyal, partly because you're often their first aspirational trade-up experience, but you're mm. resaving them air conditioning, free Wi-Fi, sparkly clean washrooms. You know, I'm saying that because that's our experience, but it's both something about the value-driven nature of the economy. And look, that's the same as any economy at this point in the cycle. If you've only got 100 yeah. bucks a day, you've only got 100 bucks a day. And so... The mindset of really understanding those customers, really respecting them, walking in their shoes is, is super, super important. Try and remember a time when your own economy or your own culture or your own experience was kind of similar back in the day. Because I think consumers behave in very similar ways depending on the cycle. Yeah. So, you know, if I take myself back to, to my childhood, the idea of going to a McDonald's was just the most exciting thing on earth in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So everywhere is the same, but different. That's something about consumers. Moving it forward to kind of how you ended up in India, the NRI community has been incredibly successful and in establishing themselves in all corners of the world. You've gone the other way. How do you see foreign participation in India growing in the years to come? And actually, in the 10 years that you've been there, have you seen more people come in from abroad and try and establish brands and businesses and crack that huge consumer market? The Indian diaspora has proved extraordinarily successful. I mean, I think it's something like 50% of NASA and Microsoft employees globally are of Indian extraction, right? Yeah. Let's not forget with India that India is a three and a half thousand year old trading culture. Mm. Yeah, in that regard, it is a bit different to China. So when I say the economy of India is unto itself, that's true. The diaspora has been trading around the world for thousands of years, right? I mean, it's very outward looking in that sense. And if you draw a parallel, Ben, to what we're doing, so in West Bengal, there's a fishing community called the Siletis, yes. um, who were doing it super tough after partition, right? The whole trade blew up and disaster basically struck. And a few of them headed out in a pioneering way to the UK. And they didn't know what mm. to do. So they set up <laughs> what they call balti chains, which were a kind of bastardized version of the, the cuisine back home. And the ultimate kind of in-product customization to the British customer who was then more into you know, full English breakfast or whatever. Now, that group of Siletis with nothing, with absolutely nothing, ended up building the largest single subsector in UK dining. So I think there was something like 9,000 Balti houses, you know, in Blimey. Birmingham, Leicester, London, etc. So I'm partly saying it because we're trying to do the opposite. You yeah. were like the British yeah. guys taking pizza. And of course, when I meet Italians, <laughs> they're saying, this is an outrage, you know, who these British guys <laughs> taking pizza? I don't think it's that different. I'll tell you what the common denominator, in our opinion, Ben, is it's hunger. What does hunger lead to? Hunger leads to staying power. Whether you're a Punjabi coming to Paris or a Parisian going to the Punjab or people going here and there. In a place like India, which is a terribly long game, 
you need yeah. a super incentive to do it. I tend to think that comes from hunger, need, appetite. Of course, that's something to do with us because we're privately funded, we're private entrepreneurs. If I look at other categories of business, you definitely have an advantage if the capital that's uh, funding your India venture is long. The longer, the better, right? I mean, we see a lot of guys trip up when one way or another, their funding is shorter term. So it's it's private equity that's looking for five to seven year returns. I mean, I've seen a lot of brands out of the UK who kind of, whether they're successful domestically or not, you know, they kind of say, well, I'd like to go to India, right? And they sometimes have a go at doing that themselves. They usually do structures like franchising because they're Mm. too scared of taking capital risk. But whichever structure they do, they're selling a story back to their investors of sort of three to five year returns. They're partly selling that because the investors need that kind of story, but it's totally misaligned with the reality. I mean, if you take a firm like JCB or Vodafone or or other, at least UK companies who've made it, or Hindustan Lever, it's a much older story. They've done that over many decades. So going back to the point about markets, right? We're bullish on the market. There are many reasons to think the next cycle in India will be a good one. Indeed, many people think it might be a super cycle. That's interesting. I think we could be heading for somewhat of a super cycle here in India, but you are living the story every day. You're on the ground. You're working in the trenches. Is that really the case? Is it different? Is it a hard place to do business? Is there fear still in the minds of people that go and set up businesses in India? There is a very high fear and prejudice factor around India, yeah, which is linked to business failures. What I think people need to dig into more is when we study brand or business failures in India, it's very often to do with misaligned capital, poor partner choices. It's not innately to do with India. But that can happen anywhere in the world. It can totally happen anywhere in the world. And in that regard, I'm bound to say, and this goes back to our business that has a central methodology for how you do different markets. And it doesn't really change market by market, right? Tax regimes may change, regulatory regimes may change, Mm. but the the Mm. overall kind of things you need to do to go into a market don't really change. The things that we have seen in the last seven years that have changed things in terms of more appetite for India are, are often related to external factors. So the situation in China, we see a lot of people who've turned attention away from China towards India. So I'm going to give you an example of this. There was an edict from Japanese central government about a year ago for Japanese companies to start to think about other options for their production capabilities outside of mainland China. And we've seen a huge pull from India to try and win business away from China at the same time. And it's completely logical whether India can recreate from a manufacturing and and production perspective, what China has done remains to be seen. What people often find is that when they look at their non-China options, they find that places like Vietnam are better production centers. Mm. But but as a market, and in, in our space, which is consumer, it's obvious there is no bigger market left on earth, right? I mean, that's why people like Jeff Bezos are forever coming here and Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of it. I mean, Amazon announced another fund the other day for, it was a quarter of a billion US dollars to help supply businesses. The reason those businesses are here is, as they say, it's the last billion consumers. There aren't any others. But it does come with its challenges, as you've relayed there. And we've seen huge events that we've read about here in the Western press, things like demonetization, GST tax reforms. We might read about them. You've lived and experienced them firsthand. Talk us through your experience in dealing with this complex, sometimes overnight, change the way that you do business. 
we've had to deal with any amount of things. And going back to one of the themes emerging from this conversation, Ben, I'm not sure that's different to anywhere else. If you said that the market in India, let's say, is a bit like the market in the UK in the 1970s, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Mm. You, you can draw a parallel. I'm sure if you were an Indian investor in the UK in the 70s and the UK went cap in hand to the IMF and there were massive capital controls whacked in place, yeah. you'd probably have been thinking, oh my God, what am I doing here? So I think it is important for people to understand that you know, what happens at this stage in the cycle is very t- similar to what happens elsewhere. That is to say, you know, it can be bumpy. So if you, I mean, if you pick off a couple of obvious examples in our world, demonetization out of the blue, it came just as quickly as last year's overnight COVID lockdown. You know, mm. total snap decision, no real warnings. I'm not here to debate really whether that was a good or a bad idea. I think there's no. a lot of consensus that it wasn't such a great idea, but it caused a lot of disruption for us. But If you can't deal with that disruption, you definitely shouldn't be in the market. You need lots of local knowledge, which means lots of smart, dynamic managers, operators, colleagues, advisors that know what they're doing. The days of sending in a kind of expat team don't make any sense uh, these days. Having said that, one of the opportunities we see in the market is to create proper kind of international businesses and not get stuck in this strange dialectic of expat business versus local business, right? You want to think more like an American business that has tons of different nationalities. You need a lot of flexibility. You need to move really quickly. And I think you need to manage everyone's expectations, right? So in the end, all of this requires money. And if the management and operators on the ground haven't got the expectations correctly set with their investors, that creates all sorts of problems. Yeah, anyone coming into India or anyone going to any new market should know it's a long game, obviously. There'll be lots of ups and downs. You've got to be very light on your feet. And it's interesting because in the UK, where we still advise various clients on going overseas, when it comes to India, what we say to people is, look, is India harder to operate in than the GCC, right? Or Europe or Malta or wherever, right? Probably a bit. And that's more to do with the difference between your home market and the Indian market. It's more to do with familiarity. It's not that different, but... If one of our clients has not done much international business, we'll often try and warn them off India as a first step because it's a monster, right? It's a monster, Ben. There is precious little point engaging in the Indian market unless you want to get scale. So the thing that people often forget is actually the 1.4 billion people isn't in their bit of the market, 1.4 billion at all. It's yeah, Their market category might be 20 million people, right? Mm. Depending mm. on what they're selling and whether it's a service or a product, et cetera. And then what we often say to people is, yeah, if you only want to do a bit of business, like go to Dubai, go to Saudi, don't bother. If you want to do a lot of business, mm. come to India. And if you don't want to do a lot of business, why come to India? The pandemic here in the Western world has expediated the mammoth rise of delivery apps. Just Eat, Deliveroo. I'm a, a huge user now, way more so than I was perhaps 18 months ago. But I don't think many of our listeners will realize that the concept of food delivery practically started in Mumbai in the late 19th century with the, the network of double wallers who hand deliver about 200,000 home-cooked lunches every day to the office workers of the city. How have your restaurants moved to online, if they have at all? And is this a phenomenon that you see going forward in India or are people going to snap back to restaurants as and when they can? India basically tracks the rest of the world in terms of consumer behaviors. There's nothing fundamentally different about it. In that sense, multi-channel 
in food retail or, or restaurants. It has become a thing. What's happening now in restaurants with the food aggregators and delivery guys is what was happening when Amazon turned up 25 years ago. So there's just this moment in the market where suddenly people are saying that what they used to have out in a retail store, they can now have at home on the workplace or grab and go or drive through or whatever. So it's happening here. The conditions for it are great in the sense that it's a massive market. Don't forget the reason the Darbo wall is economic the, is, is low labor costs in India. And clearly, along with large and ever-growing demand. I mean, I've been talking to colleagues in the restaurant trade as the UK opens up and customers are clamoring to get back into pubs and restaurants, but the operators mm. have a problem. They don't have enough staff. Like mm. There aren't enough yeah. staff. And then the yeah. ones that they've got, guess what? Want more money. So going back to delivery and multi-channel in India, the low labor cost makes a lot of sense. Having said all of this, what everybody really needs to get into in India, and it's often staggering how many people miss this, is you've got to rework the P&L for India. And you'll get the usual trade-off. So yes, there are low labor costs, but the, the average order value is terribly low, right? Sure. So actually, trying to squeeze a margin out of most Indian businesses is very complicated. Deliveries surging, multi-channels happening, models are evolving. But the dirty secret of the industry is who's actually making any money? The mm. operators are not necessarily making money. And this is a world over thing, right? The aggregators definitely aren't making money. And you get this thing in India, which goes back to capital, where when companies like, in our case, Swiggy, Zomato, you know, some of the cloud kitchen guys get funded by the soft banks, the 10 cents, the KKRs of this world, who need and want to deploy massive amounts of capital, suddenly the business is going at an extraordinary pace with a sort of longer term hope that somewhere there'll be a profit. And that's a big watch out for people because there is a temptation in India to try and grab market share, to somehow believe that if you don't grab it, you'll be left on the dock as the ship goes into the distance. Mm. I think what we've found as investors is you need to hold your nerve a bit. India's not going anywhere. Take your time, get the unit level economics right, get your proof of concept and don't freak out. But again, it's not different to anywhere else. Once KKR's on your board, or controlling your business, guess what? They want you to move quickly. It doesn't matter where you are. If you want to succeed in India, in our experience, you not only have to customize products, you have to customize your entire business top to toe, right? You must become an Indian version of whatever you yeah. were in yeah. your country of origin. And that's where guys like Hindustan Lever have done a, a very good job, right? They are effectively, yeah, it's an overseas business, but, but that unit is effectively an Indian business. On the product side, mm. what we do relies on people's palates, and there's nothing yeah. more personal. I mean, if you're in the burger game, clearly beef's off the menu. I mean, yeah, everybody knows that. And then you're into this kind of interesting thing where people aren't coming to an American burger chain to eat something that's Indian. You've broken the deal there. Mm. People are coming in because they want something different. Now, at the same time, they're not going to like the taste of it if it isn't somehow familiar. The answer in simple terms is it's still a burger in terms of a patty and a bun, sauces and other toppings of various sorts. But if you take the bun tiki, which I mentioned, the core ingredients in the patty is potato, is aloo. And the way you build a lot of high volume consumer plays in India is by having a huge dependence on your lowest priced item. And your lowest priced item, which gets the customer in, which is the base effectively, needs to be extremely close to either something people are very familiar with or something that a competitor who's had more growth yeah. has already done. McDonald's have the aloo tiki. Okay. And so we have a bun tiki. 
And we think our bun tiki is better than their aloe tiki, but I should think <laughs> their aloe tiki is better than our bun tiki. But they're basically very, very similar. So you're trying to draw customers in and get your volume there. Now, then over time, the trick is you trade people up. And we sort of work on like a value, core, and premium pyramid, the top of the pyramid being premium. And at the premium level, you're into proteins, you're into things like chipotle sauce, you're into words like barbecue. So at the top yeah, level there, yeah. it, it, looks, it looks and feels a bit more like an American burger. I mean, the answer in, in practical terms is, and it was ever thus, whether you want to kind of produce a car in India or sell a phone or peddle a pizza or a burger, you just need to spend as long as you possibly can with customers talking to them and working out and looking at the capacitors. Yeah. The answers are all there. What is staggering though, Ben, is the amount of people that come into the market. And when they look retrospectively, often after market failure, they find that they've mm. spent a couple of hundred hours really having meaningful conversations. It's not enough. It's going to take ages. And by the way, we did tons of research before we launched Wendy's and we still screwed up elements of it. My advice to anyone coming into India is you obviously need a, a business plan. It's got enough sex appeal for whoever's signing off the money. Yeah. And there's always that dynamic of you want to sell something that's going to be big and quick and the rest of it. And that's not wrong. But I think the truth is, and maybe this is more for the people signing off the budgets, you should double everything, right? <laughs> double everything. There we go. It's all budding entrepreneurs wanting to set up shop in India. Double everything. It's a funny thing is because I wouldn't necessarily double budget. I definitely double time. But often I say to big US, American, Japanese companies, one of the things to watch out for is your overhead. Because I'll tell you what happens here is people don't think in rupees. So let's say you're a yen-denominated company. What you're yeah. thinking is, okay, well, I'll need a CFO, a CEO, a COO, a this, a head of compliance, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter whether you're a bank or a biscuit manufacturer, frankly. And you'll find, particularly if you have, which is important, a big local component, you'll suddenly be thinking, gosh, my managers cost a le lot less here than they do in Tokyo. Now, the problem with that is you often end up paying way too much because you're thinking in yen, not rupees. So many companies we know lose heart because they find that the revenues take twice or three times as long as they thought, but they're mm. carrying a big overhead. Let, let's say your head office is, is, in, is in Miami, right? With the best will in the world, someone goes to India, people then forget about them. And then three years later, the CFO says, India's making no money, but we're carrying this cost, right? So he mm. says, I'm going to give it another year. And then he cuts the whole thing short. Whereas actually, if he had, mm. if he had half the overhead, he'd have twice the runway. It's just, mm. it's little stuff like this to think about. And I think we're running out of time. I want to ask you one question. And I'm going to ask this to all of my guests on the series. What is the one thing that you want listeners to think differently about India? Start again. Don't think that a yeah. couple of business trips or some year off trip in a kind of kaftan to go, yeah. you know, <laughs> equals knowledge. It really doesn't. So maybe the answer, talking myself into this, is like, no, nothing. Get into the mindset of the country you're targeting. In the case of India, you need to walk in the shoes of your customers. You need tons of time on the ground. You need proper time to research all of this. So it's a really blindingly obvious point. But I tell you, there's a funny thing here, Ben. And I often see this in England. Mm. If I talk to board members or investors in the UK, and there's something about this Anglo-India thing, and I say to them, how much do you know about India? The answer, and you can see it in their eyes, is nothing. They don't know anything mm. about India. But mm. what's staggering is the amount of board members or investors that will say they know about India. I think there's a weird thing in terms of international expansion, and it's particularly true with India to the UK. 
where people just don't want to say they don't know about a place, right? (laughs) There's a great book called The Inner Game of Tennis, which always said that basically the thing that screws everyone's tennis up is is too much training, right? They know too much. And, And this guy in California, he said, you need to unlearn tennis. Right, you need to forget everything you've ever learned. So maybe that's what I'd say. It's not the inner game of tennis, it's the inner game of India. <laughs> okay, well, that's probably a great place to end, Jasper. Thank you so much for coming on and, and being my first guest. And best of luck to you as you embark on the next phase of your growth journey Thanks in India. for having me, Ben. And I'll be really excited to listen to your future guests, who I'm sure will be a lot better than me. That's the danger of going first. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed, wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, stay safe.